Well, good morning. I just uh, want to say that thank you so much for praying for me, and thank you so much for the warm welcome. It's been a real delight. It's, it's, it's a little surreal to be here. Um, my family, I think I had a picture up there. They send their greetings from Waco, Texas. Uh, my wife, Jenny, our oldest, uh, going this way, Samuel, Ethan, and Caroline, uh, they send their greetings as well. Uh, I wanted to kick off by just with a quick confession. I'm currently a, a student at, at Baylor University, uh, as Randy was sharing. I um, recently attended my first Baylor sporting event. And uh, when I went there, I, I, I did want to... Uh, I, I had a struggle in my heart. I had a hard time cheering for them, and I realized that the reason why is because I still bleed orange and blue. Woo! And so, um, yeah. So uh, just so excited to be here, so glad to be back in Illinois. Uh, the cold weather, I know it's cold, but it's been really refreshing to my soul. Um, just a few initial comments before we begin our time of teaching. Uh, believe it or not, um, all three of my kids, they grew up playing in that indoor playground right outside these doors. And... Um, if it wasn't for the hospitality and the cups of free coffee from this church, <laughs> I'm not sure how Jenny and I would have made it through those early years of parenthood. So I'm just so grateful for that. Um, as well as uh, a couple years ago, for a brief period of transition, we actually worshiped right here in these pews, just sitting over in this section, kind of hiding for a few moments. But um, Randy was preaching through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, after service, he prayed for our family. And um, we just have such fond memories of the ways in which God ministered and encouraged our family to, to persevere and to uh, spur us on in our faith. And so to be at a church that first blessed and ministered to me uh, is just a tremendous blessing and a testimony of God's kindness. And so thank you so much for your warm welcome. So glad to be here. I'm just so excited to, to worship with you this morning. If I could uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, this morning, um, we'll be in the book of Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, once again, that's Isaiah chapter 40. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Um, and as you're turning there, I'll, um, I'll borrow from Randy. If I could put a tag on this message, uh, I would say, uh, God's comfort for you. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we direct our hearts and our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may behold the wondrous things that you would want to speak to us this morning through your holy word. Pray that the meditation of our hearts the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first time Nathan Fox, child development expert, set foot into a Romanian orphanage, he was struck by the silence that surrounded him. He describes the experience like this. He says, the most remarkable thing about the infant room 
Notice how quiet it was. Probably because the infants had learned over time that their cries would not be responded to. Basically, aside from being fed and bathed on a fixed schedule, these babies, these infants, were left to fend for themselves. And so whenever one of them would cry, the the workers at the orphanage, rather than quickly tending to their needs, they were deliberately trained to not pick them up and to not sing to them and to not comfort them. But instead, the, the workers would remain silent until the babies grew quiet themselves. As we reflect on this somber story, there are seasons, often seasons in the Christian life, that reflect the silence of this orphanage. Times when it feels as though our cries fall on deaf ears. Times when God not only feels distant, but absent, cold and uncaring, nowhere to be found. To the point that when we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we can't help but wonder if we ourselves have been cut off from the comfort of God. These moments can be especially difficult. Moments of waiting. Moments of uncertainty. Moments of personal sin and failure. Moments when we ourselves have been sinned against. This is the very mood that blankets the background of our text for this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, it is addressed to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, during a time when they were living as exiles in Babylon. What Isaiah is doing, he's prophesying to a time in Judah's history when the people of God, their, their great city, Jerusalem, lay in ruins. And Solomon's temple, their place of worship, had been reduced to nothing more than a heap of rubble. It was a time when the comfort of God was nowhere to be found. A time when the people of God were losing heart at an exponential rate. Before we read our passage for this morning, I wanted to spend a few brief moments in Lamentations chapter 1 where the prophet Jeremiah provides us with an introduction, a snapshot into the state of Jerusalem at this time. And this is what uh, Lamentations 1 reads. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. Verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers... She has none to comfort her. She weeps bitterly in the night and yet has none to comfort her. I'd like to ask us to sit in that for just a moment, to feel the weight of that burden, to feel that tension. I'm indebted to the the writing of Dr. Rebecca Pohays a seminary professor who uh, specializes in in trauma studies as well as the Old Testament scripture. Uh, Dr. Pohey, she helpfully uses the language of trauma to describe the tattered state of God's people during this time. How this experience of exile, the, the experience of physical displacement, the experience of communal violence would have caused nothing short 
of the trauma of divine abandonment for the entire community. All this to say, brothers and sisters, the question for today that I'd like to address is the question of how. How does God comfort his people when they're troubled and weary? Better yet, how does God comfort us today when our hope is waning? As we look into our passage for today, Isaiah chapter 40, we find in the first two verses uh, one reason, the first reason, the first way in which God comforts his people, we find that he does it with the news of forgiveness. God comforts his people with the news of forgiveness. The opening line of Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. If I could very briefly set the scene, God is acting like a grand judge sitting before his heavenly court, and he's issuing a decree of comfort to be extended to his people. And what we need to understand is that this opening line of Isaiah chapter 40 is drastically different from Isaiah chapters 1 through 39. I was talking to Brother Albert Williams. I think the men have been studying Isaiah in the, on Saturday mornings, and they're in Isaiah chapter 35, I believe. But Isaiah 1 through 39, it's grueling. It's highly confrontational. The language is harsh. It's ugly. It's filled with the language of judgment. And the reason why is because of Judah's sin. To be clear, the people of God were not innocent. They rejected God's word, And rather than heeding the call to repent and to turn from their ways, Isaiah chapter 1, it tells us how the people of Judah had become thieves and murderers, lovers of bribes, perpetrators of injustice towards widows and the fatherless. And so for that reason, we see this harsh language for the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. When we get to chapter 40, verse 1, we find this remarkable shift in tone. Rather than coming after his people with another chapter of condemnation, God, he breaks the silence of exile with the news of comfort. Now, the verses 1 and 2, they are just loaded with good news, textured with good news. And I'm sure if I did a survey of the room, we... We all have that one person in our life, maybe a relative or a coworker, who they just don't know how to write a friendly text message. <laughs> One-worded responses, cold and, cold and abrupt. They would really benefit from using an emoji or two. <laughs> Thankfully, what we find in our text is that our God knows how to write an encouraging message. Hallelujah. Read this with me, beginning in verse 1. The first thing I'd like for you to notice is the way that God uses repetition. Comfort, comfort my people. And the reason he does this is to be unmistakably clear that the days of condemnation have passed and the days of comfort have come. He's using repetition for the sake of clarity and emphasis. But not only does he use repetition, he also uses personal language. Notice the personal touch in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. He uses the language of possession and ownership. Knowing that how demoralized his people must have felt, he dignifies them by reminding them of their true identity. What God is saying here, he's saying, I am yours and you are mine. In other words, what God is doing here is he's reassuring them that their covenant was still intact. That their sins had done nothing 
to sever his commitment to them. But church, it only gets better. Look with me at verse 2. Not only does he use repetition, not only does he add a personal touch. Verse 2, this is my favorite part of this text. He uses and he speaks in a tender, tender tone. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. It says at the beginning of verse 2. The language here can literally read, speak to their hearts. Meaning, speak gently. Speak compassionately. Speak affectionately in such a way that reaches their innermost parts. Speak in a way that your words will act as a healing salve to their deepest wounds, is the idea here. If I could just pause for a moment and say this, uh, church, I'm sure we all know this, but there are very few things in life that are more painful than when people are tone deaf to our pain. Oh, Yet how comforting it is to know that our God is not tone deaf to our suffering, but his tender tone reveals how much he understands. As we get to verse, uh, the second half of verse 2, here we get to the crux of the message. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double from the Lord's hand, uh, that she has received double from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Now, when we first read this, I don't know about you, but my ears kind of perk up, and I'm a little bit suspicious of this whole language of double for all her sins. It, it looks excessive, as if God forced his people to suffer unnecessarily, to, to suffer overtime as a cruel form of punishment. What's going on here with this language of double for all her sins? That word double, it's a fascinating term. It only appears one other place in Scripture, Job 11:6. And it actually means to fold in half, to double over, where the Lord's own hand is folding over, covering over the sins of Judah in exact measure. So the idea here, brothers and sisters, is the idea of total forgiveness. What God is saying is, I have covered over the whole of your sins. As I was Thinking about verses 1 and 2, I was immediately reminded of just this one Sunday morning worshiping back in Waco, Texas with my family. Uh, my family, we've um, always typically worshipped in more contemporary style settings, very similar to, to Windsor Road Christian Church. Uh, but for the past two years, God in his providence, he led us to uh, an old, old historic Baptist church in Waco uh, that was founded in 1851. And so this church, um, when you walk into the sanctuary, it's just covered in stained glass. In the back, there's this beautiful pipe organ that goes all the way to the ceiling. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but one thing that's taken us some time to get used to is actually behind the pulpit on the stage, every Sunday, there are about 60 or 70 or so church members, uh, mostly with gray hair and a few extra wrinkles, who make up the church choir. And y'all, they can sing. <laughs> There's this uh, one morning, granted, this happens from time to time, I came to church with a heavy heart. Perhaps you know the feeling. My spirit was low uh, for reasons I couldn't pinpoint exactly. I felt disheartened and discouraged. It was one of those weeks when I wanted the service to move quickly so I could go home and start thinking about lunch. But just then, the choir, they began singing that 
more recent hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. If you don't know that the hymn, uh, I'm not sure if we sing it here, but I'd like to read a few of the verses for you. It goes, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful past. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, when he comes at last. As, as that beautiful hymn, the lyrics and the melody filled the sanctuary that morning, in ways that I can't exactly precisely explain, I, I sensed and I sensed the Holy Spirit tending to my heart with the words simply, Tim, I will hold you fast. I will hold you fast. In that moment, a flood of comfort filled the depth of my soul. Church, as we reflect on these initial verses in our passage for today, that is essentially what God is doing to his people. He's singing a song of comfort to the people of Judah. He's singing the lyrics of forgiveness into the depths of their souls. What this means for us today, for those of us who know and love Christ, For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, for those of us who belong to Christ, God is still singing these words today. I am yours, and you are mine. I forgive the whole of your sins. Be comforted. So in our passage for this morning, the first way we see God comfort his people is with the the news of forgiveness. As we move on to verses 3 to 5, we find yet a second way that God comforts his people through the promise of his coming glory. God comforts his people with the promise of his coming glory. As we get to verses 3 and 4, we we encounter this wilderness scene with no way across. Uh, a, a rough and jagged terrain that's impassable for any human being. I'd like to read verses 3 and 4 for us. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, my mind immediately goes to the Lord of the Rings. Where I think about Frodo Baggins hanging on for dear life on the crevice of a cliff, looking across at all the rocks and boulders, bogs and fires, wondering if he'll ever make it across to Mordor, and some of you are tracking with me. But the question we need to ponder at this moment in this text is the question, what exactly is this wilderness referring to? What's going on here with this wilderness imagery? As we do some digging around, uh, we find in Isaiah 64.10 that this wilderness is actually a description of God's people. The barren landscape which the people of Judah had become. A place and a people of spiritual and physical poverty. 
a place where, according to Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of God had departed and left like a swiftly moving cloud. And yet, as we continue to read, we find that it's into this wilderness setting, this place of destitution, that the glory of God returns. The language here of this highway being built for God This would have elicited just so much joy amongst the people of God because it could only mean one thing, a royal homecoming. The Lord was coming in the way of mercy, and nothing in the whole of creation, not even the treacherous terrain of Judah's sin, could stop the Lord from returning to his people. Now this this text for this morning, Isaiah chapter 40 For Isaiah's original audience, they would have likely uh, understood this passage to have been fulfilled just a few years later uh, by a Persian king named King Cyrus. Uh, King Cyrus enters the scene. He delivers God's people from the grip of Babylon. He passes a decree, lets them return back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding their temple and their city. In other words, Cyrus makes a way where there was no way by delivering God's people. But for those of us this morning, as we uh, look at this passage, as those who have access to the New Testament scripture, we know that this is not solely referring to one single event in history, but rather a pattern of God's salvation, a pattern of God's unfolding redemption. And the reason we know this is because Isaiah chapter 40 appears in all four Gospels, to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. And so in John chapter 1, verse 23, one of those examples, John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the, yes, wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So when we begin to puzzle these pieces together, thinking about the way in which John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, when we puzzle this together, what we realize is that when God inspired Isaiah 40, He was ultimately pointing to Jesus. Jesus, the one who was infinitely greater than Cyrus. Jesus, the true and greater king. Jesus, the one whose life, death, and resurrection made a way when there was no way. Jesus, the one who was exiled not to Babylon, but to a cross, so that one day we could live in the new Jerusalem. So when we go back to verse 5 of our text in Isaiah 40, when it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Brothers and sisters, this verse means everything. Because it points and directs our heart to the coming day of Christ. The day when Jesus will return to renew all things. And we alongside the whole of creation, will experience God's comfort in the most ultimate sense. Let me bring this down to earth just a, just a little bit. The day is coming when the pain of depression and suicide will be no more. The day is coming when the senseless killings caused by gun violence will stop. A day is coming when every cancer cell will die Chronic illness will fade. The tremors of anxiety will be calmed. Racism will be overturned. And wars will cease. 
and the scales of God's justice will be brought perfectly into balance. And rather than feeling like unattended orphans, what Revelation 21.4 assures us is that God, with his own hand, he will wipe away our every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. Or in the words of Andre Crouch, gospel songwriter who wrote the song, Soon and Very Soon. My favorite verse of that song goes like this. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're going to see the king. In other words, God, he comforts his people with the promise of his coming glory. If I could offer a quick pastoral comment. Um, This promise of coming glory, however, is not an invitation to do what Johnny Cash sings about in that one song to become so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I think we do that sometimes. We get so caught up in the clouds that we lose sight of the fact that God wants to comfort us in the present and use us to minister to this world. I think one of the best examples of this um, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who actually um, cites... Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, at the end of his famous, I have a dream speech. For Dr. King, as he looked out at the dark and desolate valleys of segregation and and racial inequality, rather than losing hope, he fixed his gaze at the coming of the glory of the Lord. Mine eyes have seen the glory, if you will recall. Richard Lisher, in his biography of Dr. King, he says that one of the defining traits of Dr. King's preaching is that as he preached, he would often pull his message from an entirely different realm. In other words, Dr. King was an expert at drawing comfort from the realm of heaven and using it to comfort others in the pursuit of justice. Church, may we do the same. May we be so heavenly-minded that we transform the world around us with the comfort that we have first received. May, us tend to, may we tend to the broken hearts, to those who still have tears on their cheeks. As Randy preached last Sunday, to live on earth as a citizen of heaven for the glory of God. In closing, if I could just briefly uh, remind you of a time that we like to refer to as the pandemic days. Uh, After the initial wave of um, sheltering in place, that when it first launched, our family was living out here in Savoy at the time. My oldest son, he's a kindergartner, attending kindergarten through the iPad. You remember those days? And one of the assignments that uh, he was given by his teacher, it's a great assignment, was um, to go outside and to look for signs of life. You know, spring in Champagne can be a little depressing, so I wasn't too, I wasn't too excited. You know, I wasn't sure what we'd find because it still looked a little gloomy out there. I hadn't seen the sun come out yet. 
we got his little notebook and we started looking and searching and searching and after a while and we found some stuff. I have a picture here of what, what he uh, discovered. He found a, a bush, some grass, uh, one tree bud. <laughs> and I don't, rem- I don't really remember, um, I don't think it was a profound moment for my son, but it was for me. So if you remember those days, there was a time when the world was especially crazy. And yet as we gaze at these small signs of life, they brought comfort to our souls that there was a dawn of a new day. The seasons were shifting. There was hope for tomorrow. I wonder how many of us today need to do the same with the comfort of God. I wonder how many of us need to search the scriptures for signs of life with Christ. Truth is, for many of us, from from the tips of our toes to the furthest horizon, sometimes all we can see is the valleys of trouble and despair. Let us be reminded, church, that just as the seasons will always turn, the comfort of God is available. God comforts his people with the news of forgiveness and the promise of his coming glory. He is calling out this morning, you are forgiven. My glory is coming. Or if you could walk away with one thing this morning, church, here's the bottom line. God's comfort is available for you. May the Lord impress this truth on our hearts. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for your living word. We thank you for all that you are. You are the God of all comfort. We thank you for the promises of the scripture that we've examined this morning, the promises of just your gospel, that in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of life eternal, the forgiveness of our sins, and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Father, for those of us here in this room who need to be reminded of these different pieces, these nuggets of comfort, Father, would you speak this morning? Would you tend to their hearts through the ministry of your Holy Spirit? Would you remind and assure them of your great love for them? And as you continue to minister and comfort your church, help us to go forth and comfort others with what we have first received. In Jesus. Thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness. We love you from the depths of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.